Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 15. We're going to get right into the message today uh, so that we can jump right into our time of fellowship together and see again what God has in store for our church. Romans chapter 15. Verses 7 through 13 is where we're going to spend our time. Lord willing, uh, the goal here is that each and every one of us would grow on a couple of fronts. Number one, our understanding of faith and hope. Um, Those are really important things, but there is a difference between faith and hope. Uh, Number two, how all joy and peace uh, are to be ours in the Christian life. I don't know if, uh, if you know this, but God has promised that all joy and peace are the Christian's existence. They are, that is the status of the kingdom people. And then number three, an accurate understanding of what it means to abound in hope, uh, and that by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in this context, we're going to need to understand what hope leads to, and of course, what is a right understanding of the power of the Holy Spirit. So, without further ado, Romans 15, starting at verse 7 and going to 13, these are the words of God. Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for His mercy as it is written. Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. Again, he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. Again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Now, may the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Over the past few weeks, we have uh, we've been looking at what it means to bear with one another in our weakness, and we've seen on two different occasions, Romans chapter 14, verse 1, and Romans chapter 15, verse 7, that we are called to accept one another just as Christ accepted us. But this is the line that I love. In 15.7, we're supposed to accept one another just as Christ accepted us to the glory of God. It's a profound thing to realize, church, that God is most glorified when his people, when his followers uh, are following his lead. When we are accepting one another, that is brothers and sisters in Christ, in mercy. Romans chapter 15, verses 7 through 9, show us three ways that God is most glorified through merciful acceptance. The first is that he has fulfilled his promise to Israel. God has accepted Israel, and he is to be glorified for it. Second, he has accepted the nations. He has accepted the Gentiles. God is glorified for his acceptance. And then finally, God is glorified when we, as brothers and sisters, live in harmony, live in unity with one another. God's heart is grieved, the Spirit of God is grieved when the church lives in division. Do you know that? 
The scripture tells us in, in Psalm 133 how good and pleasing it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. And, and as is typical with the narcissistic people, as is typical with the people who, who see themselves in everything, we look at it and we see how good and pleasing it is for us to dwell together in unity. We just constantly look at it from our vantage point. But please understand, it is, it is also to be seen that it is good and pleasing and glorifying to God for us to live in unity with one another. How good and pleasing it is for the Father, for us, to actually love one another. Isn't that an amazing truth? So it's also worth mentioning here, though, that acceptance, or this particular acceptance of the saints among each other, is uh, by God, is why the scripture says that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free, neither male nor female. It does not mean, uh, it does not mean that distinctions don't exist. How many of you know that distinctions clearly exist inside of our life? But that in Christ we are all one. The same Apostle Paul who wrote that there is neither Jew or Gentile in Galatians 3.28, in Romans, makes the distinction between Jew and Gentile over and over and over again. In Romans 1.16, when it says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, it then says to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Well, Paul, what are you talking about? I thought there were no distinctions. Of course there are distinctions. But in Christ Jesus, we are all one. The glory of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel, is that God has said, from the ends of the earth, I am drawing men to myself. I am bringing all people groups together. Men, women, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. God is saving in Romans 3, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul says, What advantage is there in being a Jew? And he answers the question, Much in every way. There's a distinction. And the distinction there is because they were the ones to whom the promises were given. We can see it in Ephesians that Paul makes distinctions between masters and slaves and men and women. We see this in Titus and Timothy and Galatians and so on uh, down the line of the New Testament epistles. The point of all of this is that there are clear distinctions, and yet we've all been made one in Jesus Christ. Another way that the scripture communicates this beautiful, this beautiful truth is that God is no respecter of persons. How many of you know that? How many of you are grateful for that? God is no respecter of persons. God is not looking at you and saying, well, you're a noble individual, therefore I'll save you. You're a rich individual, therefore I'll save you. You're a man, therefore I'll save you. You're a master and not a slave, therefore I'll save you. God is no respecter of persons. And this idea that in Christ there is neither Jew or Gentile and that God is no respecter of persons should have a profound bearing on our teaching of salvation. The point of all of Scripture, the point of the, the, the fullness of Scripture, the whole counsel of God's Word is rooted in this truth. God wants that none should perish, but that all come to everlasting life. The idea that God is no respecters of, respecter of person should inform what we understand about John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not what? Perish, but have everlasting life. Whosoever and all are all without exception and all without distinction. God loves everyone. And we need to understand that. He has come to rescue the hearts of men. Missing this not only leads to uh, foolish views inside of salvation, but it also leads to foolish views elsewhere. 
I'll just list a couple of them for you. The first, and what I believe to be one of the most insidious views in the world today, is that people have said that when God's word tells us there is neither male nor female, that this is biblical credibility for gender neutrality. This is biblical credibility that God doesn't recognize biology. And that, that it doesn't matter. If you want to pick which gender you are, you can. I wish I was making this nonsense up. I wish I was making it up. But people are looking for ways to twist the scripture uh, to suit their way of thinking. And God says, it is a pity and you better be careful. Because when you call what is good evil and what is evil good, you're in you're in danger. This is what the scripture tells us. The second uh, strange view that comes without understanding that God is no respecter of persons or that there are distinctions but we're one in Christ is a view called replacement theology. Replacement theology has been around for quite some time. Uh, replacement th theology posits this idea that the church is the new Israel. But anybody who reads the scripture understands Israel is still Israel. The church is one, and Israel is a part of her. There is an affection that God has for his people, Israel, that we cannot wrap our heads around. And we need to embrace that truth. And we need to stop thinking that he is not loving them. The truth of the story of Romans is that he provoked them to jealousy by saving us. Does he not still clearly identify those people as his? Of course he does. He's going to stop at nothing that they might be saved. Again, that salvation is just like ours. It is by grace through faith, but he loves them. The true importance of these distinctions is actually found in Romans 15, 8 through 12. Follow along with me, if you will. In verse 8, the apostle Paul says, Christ has become a servant to the circumcision. Who is the circumcision church? The Jew. On behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promise given to the fathers. This is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Jesus is the fulfillment of promises given to Abraham. And then in verse 9 he says that Christ has become a servant for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. Because God extends mercy to all. Uh, he is glorified by the Gentiles because they have been brought in. The first distinction of this Jewish people is what I want to look at. The promises are found, the promises to the Jewish people, are found in the book of Genesis and throughout the Old Testament. But in Genesis in particular, chapters 12, 13, 15, 17, and then just for the sake of time, the summation of all those promises, which is in Genesis 22. So if you want to turn there, go ahead and turn with me to Genesis 22. And we're going to read verses 17 and 18. Genesis chapter 22, verse 17 and 18, God was speaking to Abraham and he said this. He said, indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. Look at verse 18. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. We see three major points inside of this one promise here. The first one is the proliferation of the Jewish people. God said that they, their descendants would be as numerous as the sand on the seashore or the stars in the heavens. And guess what? God fulfilled his promise. 
The second piece is that Jesus is the seed. He is the one to come, the redeemer, who will save all of mankind. Guess what we know? God fulfilled his promise. Jesus came. Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, the apostle Paul confirms this reading of seed when he says this, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but instead to one, and to your seed, singular. That is Christ Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise right there. Number three, the promise of salvation that is given to the rest of the world. The term for Gentile, the term for nations, is a term that you and I know very well. It's a term, ethnicity, ethnos. That's what we think of when we think of this term. God's promise is threefold in this. That number one, he would, he would, he would give Abraham, the descendants that he needed to make this happen. Number two, that the seed would come to redeem the world. And number three, that through that seed, God would save everybody. Isn't that an amazing thing? That is everybody who will believe, so please hear me. These were the promises that Jesus fulfilled to the circumcision, that is to the Jewish people. This is verses eight, uh, 8 and 9 in Romans 15. This is actually important for us to get. It's important for a couple of reasons, but, but the primary reason that I want to share with you today is that it is important for our evangelism to the Jewish people. The Jewish people today need to understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of Abraham's promise. This is why the Apostle Paul reasoned with the Jews in the synagogue. This is why the Apostle Peter uh, argued with Jews in Jerusalem. This is why we are still to be on mission to those people. Number one, God loves them. And number two, Jesus is their fulfillment. Jesus is their promised Messiah. Don't forget that idea. The second distinction is with the Gentiles. Christ became a servant to the Gentiles. He was a servant to the Jew, but he is also a servant to the Gentile so that they would glorify God for his mercy. How many of you are grateful that you are saved by grace? How many of you are grateful that Jesus died on a cross so that you don't have to? This is God. This is what he has done for us. And how many of you, because of that gratitude, look forward to times of worship when you get to praise his name? That's the motivation behind our worship. It's not because some pastor told us to stand up and sing some songs. <laughs> That's the same thing that we, we do with our Bible reading. You do not read your Bible. As Barney said this morning, you don't read your Bible to check a box. Yes, I was faithful. I read my Bible. You read your Bible because it speaks of the God who loved you, the God who redeemed you in every way and shape and form. This was uh, fulfilled by the time, this idea of saving the Gentiles was fulfilled by the time the letter of the Romans was penned. We have record of this in Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through 48. This is where Peter says, uh, these Gentiles have come to know Jesus, and here's how we know the Spirit of God dwells in these men, these, these people here, and guess what? Because that's true, nobody should be able to withhold water baptism from them. Why would we hold the sacrament of the church? Why would we withhold something that identifies them as one of us when they're clearly one of us? So the Gentile promise was fulfilled. 
But not only do we see it as a promise given to Abraham, but it was given to Jesus himself, and Jesus saw it as his mission to redeem the Gentiles. Follow with me here. You don't have to turn. You can write it down if you're a note taker. Matthew chapter 8, verse 11. It says this, I say to you that many will come from east and west. Do you know what that means? Ethnos, it means Gentiles coming to the kingdom of God. It says, many will come from east to west to recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. This was Jesus' mission, and it was prophetic by our Savior himself that they would do it. Jesus spoke these words to a, a Gentile, by the way. He spoke these words to a centurion who he said had more faith than all of Israel. Isn't that an amazing thought? to wrap your mind around. So he says, I've never seen such great faith in all of Israel. It's worth noting, though, that what follows this great, merciful, accepting statement of the Gentiles or the centurion is a warning to the Jewish people. He says to unbelieving Jews that if they persist in their unbelief, they will be cast out. So we are saved by grace through faith. But God's promise is to Jew and Gentile alike. So, to the premise of the message today. What do we do about faith and hope and the difference? What do we do about joy and peace? What do we do about abounding in hope uh, by the power of the Spirit of God? The first thing that I want you to see in those first few passages of Romans 15, what I want you to see is this is true for every one of us, Jew and Gentile alike. Anyone who professes faith in Jesus, this is true for us. There is no distinction in Christ because he has made us one. And yet there's all kinds of distinctions every day. It's okay, we're one in Jesus Christ. So, number one, our understanding of faith and hope and what is the difference between the two. Romans 15, verse 13 says this, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Hope and faith are both inside of this verse. And we have to see what they mean as we explore the difference. But he first says, now may the God of hope. What is hope? Well, I said last week that faith is the proof of something. Therefore, hope is the something that it proves. Many of you have seen this illustration before. Uh, it's, it's not original to me. I wish I, I, wish I was that creative. Um, but in times past, I've used my chair as an as a object lesson. And the chair has always represented a promise of God. Something, say, like salvation. God gives us salvation. Uh, and then on that, what I'm illustrating is actually what faith is. There, there are two and maybe now three words that I refuse as a pastor to let the culture continue to redefine and twist out of uh, any uh, reasonable meaning. And that is faith and love. And I'm going to add to that hope. Because if we lose the meanings of these, we're really, we're really in for a hurting. Okay? Faith and hope are often seen, according to Google, as synonyms. They're not. They're not synonyms, okay? So in times past, I've said this is the promise of God. It is salvation. What is faith? Well, we know what faith is. Faith is trust and that is all. So in order for you to understand faith, we know that this is salvation. And to ex this is salvation. In order to express faith, what do you do? You just sit. This is, this is, as, this is as work-based as faith is. 
It's actually abstaining from work. <laughs> it's such a fascinating idea. I've told you also in times past that this is not faith, and I need some of you to listen to me. This is not faith. This is lukewarm Christianity. This is, uh, this is Pascal's wager. Well, if I'm wrong, I'm standing on my own. No, you're dead. <laughs> if you're right... You're an unbeliever anyway, and he will spit you out of his mouth. Good luck with that. This is faith. This is not. We are not trusting God if we are not fully resting in the truth of who he is. So in times past, I've said, this is the promise of God. This is salvation. And faith is simply resting in this. But today, I want to expand the picture better. Because what I need you to connect is that this is not just salvation. This is hope. This is every promise and every hope that God has ever given to anyone who is a believer. And guess what? You can't create this. You can't make this. God either gives this or it doesn't exist. You don't by faith create anything. You put faith in what is or, or it's nothing. Okay, so please understand where I'm going with this. The chair is hope. So, so God is the God of the chair. What an interesting idea here. God is the God of the chair. Without God, there is absolutely nothing to rest on in any area of the Christian life. Nothing to rest on. I've said it in the past that, that faith doesn't create things, right? This idea, just so you know, this idea that we speak into existence things is pagan nonsense. Please stop talking about it. You create nothing. God speaks that which does not exist into existence. You believe it, that's fine, but you don't create diddly squat. That's a special pastor term. You don't, you don't create anything, and you need to understand that you don't create anything. The scripture does not say, by faith, you can create a mountain and then tell it to move. <laughs> Mountains are bad, according to this picture that Jesus says. It's a trial. It's a pain in your life. It's something. The scripture says, by faith, you can speak to the mountain move, but understand what you're doing. You're putting your faith in that God said you can move mountains. You're not putting your faith in a dream that you can move mountains, in, a, in an idea that you can move anything. You're either basing it on what God has said, the chair, or you're playing games. You've bought into cultural nonsense that you need to, well, rid yourself of, quite honestly. God's promises are our hope. God's truth is the chair. God's grace is our foundation. It is our hope. So, if hope is the chair, then faith is sitting in it. If the chair is the foundation, if hope is the foundation, then faith is building the house on top of it. Okay? Faith is trusting in God and doing exactly what it is that he has said. So we could render Romans chapter 15 verse 13 for our sake today, not permanently because I have no interest in creating my own translation of the Bible. But Romans 15, 13 could say this, may the God of the chair fill you with all joy and peace. May the God of the chair, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. But look at that next part of the line. It says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace 
in believing, before we zero in on joy and peace, I know everybody's itching for joy and peace, but before we go there, let's look at faith. We need to understand it. The question that I would have uh, to present to you is this. How did Abraham obey? How did Abraham obey in the scriptures? You see, Genesis twenty two eighteen says that he obeyed a certain way, and we kind of miss it. Okay, it says, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. But is that, is this something he earned? Is this a merit? There were actions, don't miss that. There was a step that Abraham took. But is this merit? The answer, of course, is no. The apostle Paul makes it abundantly clear. Abraham believed by faith and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is, in fact, the same way our salvation works because Abraham's life is actually a, a, a shadow, a type and shadow of our salvation. Same with Moses in the Exodus. It's a type and shadow. They were real events, but they also point to something far bigger for us, and I'll spend some time on that in a bit. Turn with me to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. It's just a couple pages back. Romans chapter 4, starting at verse 16. Here's what the Apostle Paul says, and I, I really hope that you will walk away with a, a fuller understanding of faith today. Hope is the chair. Faith is sitting in it, okay? So here's what Paul says. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace. Hold on a second. That's a significant line. A significant line. Because according to Paul... To be in accordance with grace, for justification to happen, it must be by faith. Faith is not a countervailing or a counteracting of the work of God. It is the harmony note with God's song. We must understand it. Faith is not a problem. Faith is not a work. It doesn't matter what anybody tells you. Faith is trust, and that is all. That's all we have to understand about faith. We need, though, to grasp this idea. No one is saved by grace through works. Amen? Because that nullifies grace. But everybody is either saved by grace through faith, or you're attempting to be saved by your own goodness. And spoiler alert, it's too late for that. It's too late. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And by the way, there's no amount of extra credit points that can put you back where you were. What did you fall short of? The glory of God. You can't remake that image. God alone remakes that image. Amen? So we are saved by grace through faith. We need to start really wrapping our minds around this. We are not saved by grace through our works. Now there's two camps in the church today, and I know that this will step on some toes, but listen, both these camps mean a great deal to me. I have learned, I still learn, I grow deep. I have an, a, an extreme fondness for both of these camps in the church. But two camps in the church today have the same problem with their understanding of faith. These two camps couldn't be more different on their doctrines and on many of their practices. But when it comes to faith, although it, although it manifests itself different, it has at the core the same misunderstanding. Those two camps are the charismatics and the reformed. They both miss the point of faith. Let me explain. 
In both camps, the idea of faith seems to be something of a spiritual force that has to be either worked up, that's the charismatic side, or it has to be exercised within a person by God to be employed. Both of these are talking about some sort of spiritual force, but this is not what the scripture says. For the charismatic, you have to work up your faith, get to a certain number on your meter so that you can move a mountain. Right? Why is it that your family member died and they, were, uh, and they weren't healed or, or whatever? Well, it's clearly because you never got from a one to a two in your faith. No, it's either you don't trust God or you do trust God. And then it's subject to God. God is the God of a will. He is the God of, of, of his own plan. And we have to submit to that truth. For the Reformed, though... For the Reformed, so that God, a more noble reason, to be honest with you, so that God receives all of the glory, faith somehow has to be given by God. And so even in that, they've reversed the order of salvation. A man must be regenerated first in order to place his faith in God. Spoiler alert, Abraham was never regenerated. Regeneration doesn't happen until Pentecost. Regeneration can't be until this time. And what did Abraham do? He placed his faith in Jesus Christ. What an important idea. Neither of these ideas is fully accurate. Faith is trust, and that is all. So back to Romans 4, verses 16 through 17. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace. No conflict between faith and grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants. Now look at this. Not only to those who are of the law. So is the promise given to those who are of the law? The answer is yes. It's not because they're adherents to the law. Those who are of the law is a phrase for the Jewish people, okay? So, not only to those who are of the law or to the Jewish people, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. But notice, grace is extended to both of them. That's an amazing idea. And both of them must put their faith and trust in Jesus. There is an ethnic people of God that is a descendant of Abraham, but they must put their faith in Jesus. And then there's you and I. No descendants of Abraham in the natural and yet we're children of Abraham by faith, okay? You must understand what the phraseology means in order to get a right interpretation. So it goes on, it says, Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, a father of many nations have I made you in the presence of him who believed, even God. Now look at this. Again, he makes the distinction between Jew and Gentile. Who gives life to the dead, that's the Jewish people, Paul understands this phrase. He, he knows where this is informed from the Psalms and from Jeremiah. He understands life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. What did he say about the Gentile people? He said, I'm going to make a people who were once not a people. He called them into existence. Isn't that an amazing idea? So Paul goes on in verse 18 and he says, In hope against hope, he, Abraham, believed so that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body. How many of you have ever, not losing faith, contemplated the circumstances of your life and thought, how in the world's God planning to do this? I look in the mirror most days and ask that question. So he says he never grew weak in faith, but he contemplated his own body 
And then he bought a treadmill. No, he said, he said now as good as dead, because he was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promise of God, church, if this doesn't make you want to jump up and down, you ain't listening, okay? Listen, but with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief. You can contemplate all kinds of things, but it doesn't mean that you're wavering in unbelief. So he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. What are we supposed to do? Praise Jesus, right? Praise God. We do that as we grow in our faith. And being fully assured, fully assured. This is something that the world strives for, or the church world strives for. I want to know that I have full assurance in my faith. I want to know that I'm going to heaven when I die. Look at what it says. It says, he was fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. You know why? Because Abraham walked with God. God made a promise. God answered the promise. God made a promise. God answered the promise. And then God said, I'm going to save you. And he goes, it's good. My assurance is not in my faith. It may waver at times. We're going to see that our faith can weaken. It can waver. We're, we're foolish people. Faith is trust and that is all. And sometimes we just don't trust Jesus. But please understand what his assurance was in was in God alone. God who made the promise can fulfill the promise. That's what the scripture teaches us to have assurance in what a, what a fantastic idea. So he says, finally, he says, therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. What is it in that sentence? Faith. Faith was credited to him as righteousness. And faith had feet. So how did Abraham obey? Abraham walked by faith. This does not contradict grace. It confirms it. Just a moment ago, I shared that Abraham's journey uh, works the same way as our salvation. And here's what I mean. God made a promise first, didn't he? What are you supposed to do? Trust, sit, rest, fall into the chair and let God save you because he is the God of salvation. And just so we're emphatically clear again, Romans 4 tells us that that doesn't contradict. Doesn't contradict. In order that it may be in accordance with grace, it has to be by faith. That's the truth of the word of God. Faith is not a work, it's a trust in the work of God. So hope is the chair and faith is sitting in it. Amen? Amen? Number two, this leads to an understanding of joy and peace in believing. And trust me when I say this is where it starts to get practical and hit us. Back to Romans 15 verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. Say it with me church. In believing. Say it one more time. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. That line matters. Paul's words here are not to be seen as a prayer to God. Paul doesn't say, uh, I hope that God will you fill you with joy and peace. He is praying, uh, he is declaring a blessing on the people. May the God of all joy and peace fill you, or may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe. This is actually the same as the benediction that Aaron is to give uh, over the people of Israel in in Numbers chapter 6. Listen to this. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, 
Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, and we're familiar with this. Many of you who have been a part of high church or, or more liturgical churches, you understand this. It says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. How many of you are having flashbacks of your childhood? Okay, awesome. I just wanted to make sure. But look at verse 27. Here's what he says. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and then I will bless them. Paul's words are the exact same as Aaron's. They're a blessing. But they're a blessing with a qualifier. Why do I say this? Because peace and joy are the state of those who reside in the kingdom of God. Number one, peace and joy are not a prayer to ask God for. They are truths inside of his kingdom. This is why Romans 14, 17 says, The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. How many of you know that if you're in the kingdom of God, you have full joy and full peace? Maybe you don't know that, but you should know that. That's what, we're, that's what we're experiencing in his kingdom. If we are a kingdom people, if we have faith in Jesus, we live with full peace and full joy. So this is where it gets practical, church. Just like in Numbers, there is that qualifier. Romans or Aaron says to the people of Israel, invoke the name of God on the sons of Israel and then I will bless you. Romans 15 says the God of hope will fill us with joy and peace in believing. A literal rendering of this verse would read, May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace as you sit down. <laughs> I love it. As you trust in him. How many of you struggle with that? Trusting with him. How, ma how many of you struggle in your salvation with sitting in the chair? Far less. How many of you struggle sitting in the chair when it comes to everyday life and everyday circumstances? Way more hands because this actually is... The problem. So back to the illustration. God is the God of the chair. He is the chair is hope. Sitting in the chair is faith. And the promise of full joy and full hope comes as we rest. And that is the only way it is. I was thinking about this in preparation this week, that if it was a literal kingdom, if we were talking about uh, dwelling within a fortified city, and God says, in this city, you have full joy and you have full peace. Nothing can touch you. Everything will be fine. Let's say that that's what he says. And we drift outside the gate and one of the enemies shoots an arrow and all of a sudden it hits us. We run back to the king and we go, why don't I have peace and joy? You know what the king should ask? Where in the world have you been? Where, where, how did that happen? Why? Because in the kingdom, in faith, full joy and full peace happen. The reason why we don't as Christians have full joy and peace, listen to me clearly, is because you don't trust him. You don't like my answer, but it's still true. The reason why we don't have full joy and full peace is because we're not trusting him. So let's do a little thought experiment here. When did Peter come off the proverbial chair in the story of him walking on the water? When did he come off the chair? When he saw the wind and the waves, right? He sees the wind and the waves and all of a sudden he loses peace and joy because he's not trusting Jesus now. He's trusting the circumstances. Here's the next question. Romans 4, 19 through 20, Abraham. Did Abraham ever come off the chair? The answer's no. The answer's no. Did he contemplate his problems? Heck yeah. <laughs> 
Did he look at his body and say, this ain't going to work, Lord? Yes, it's fine. But he never came off the chair. He was filled with all joy and all peace, even though he and Sarah were past childbearing age, both of them. Abraham kept trusting, and the scripture records that Abraham's faith grew strong and that he, was glor- he glorified God as he lived in full assurance. Abraham, in believing, was filled with joy and peace, and Peter, in disbelieving, was filled with anxiety and fear. So let's just hit this really quick. All of you Christians with anxiety and fear, and listen, you're going to have to hear me and not want to burn me at the stake. If you have anxiety and fear as a Christian, essential oils isn't going to help it, faith in Jesus is, okay? I really don't care what your oil tells you. What you need to do is put your trust back in Jesus. I'm not opposed to counseling. I'm not opposed to therapy. But what you need is somebody who counsels you and gives you therapy that draws you back to sitting in that chair. You know what we have? We have a bunch of pop psychology and total hogwash that's being taught to the church today. And it's not helping a soul. It's not helping anybody in this. Now hear me clearly on this one. If you think by peace and joy that I mean the cessation of war and trial and pain in your life, you're you're not listening because I don't mean that at all, okay? And if you think by joy I mean worldly happiness, I also do not mean that. The joy that God gives to those who trust in him is a joy that recognizes that trials cannot steal what God has given. Amen? Amen. Trials cannot steal what God has given. Instead, they are used for our good. The scripture says, God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So the chair represents hope. Sitting in the chair represents faith. All joy and peace are yours in so much as that you sit down. That's what you have to do. Colossians 1, 21 and 23 confirms this in a big way. These are Paul's words again. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That sounds awesome. But verse 23, but verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So finally, number three, what does it mean to abound in hope in the power of the Holy Spirit? I'd first point us uh, to uh, to verse four in chapter 15. You can't read verse 13 without verse four. What do I mean? Uh, What I mean is that the hope we are to abound in comes the exact same way it did in just a few verses before. Through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. How do you have hope? Through the encouragement of the scriptures. How do you abound in that hope? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so what does Paul mean by abounding in hope? What does he mean? The word translates overflow. But if God, if hope is the promise of God, what then does it mean to abound in the promises of God? Paul is referring to the life of a Christian living to the glory of God. If the grace of God has genuinely saved us, then it will overflow through our actions. And these actions are spelled out again in the scriptures. 
Romans 8.25 says that an overflowing hope is seen in the person who, quote, waits eagerly and with perseverance. These are human actions. This is faith, faith with feet. In 1 Peter 3.15, overflowing hope is visible to the rest of the world, so much so that they ask you about it. Set Christ apart as Lord in your life. Always being ready to give an apologia, an apologetic, a, a reasoned defense for the hope that you have. And then the line, when they ask. When they ask. What is that implying? That people will actually ask based on what they see in your life. What's the context of 1 Peter 3? Godly living. That's what the context is. It's a husband and a wife living in mutual submission. It's being harmonious. It's sympathetic. It's brotherly. It's kind-hearted. It's humble in spirit. It's not returning evil for evil, but instead giving a blessing. Blessing. A blessing. Or a blessing. These are actions of the Christian. This is faith with feet. I have no idea where I slipped into that just a second ago. The power to do all of this comes from the very same spirit that indwelt you the day you believed in Jesus. The Spirit of God is the one who lives in you. The Spirit of God is the one convicting you. The Spirit of God is the one who inspired the book that was written for you. And He is the one who's empowering you. He is empowering you every day of your life. So back to the chair. The chair is hope. Sitting in the chair is faith. To be filled with all joy and all peace requires what? Staying in the chair, right? And guess what happens in every area of your life when you stay in this chair? People wonder why you have hope. They have no idea because you don't do what the rest of the world does. You don't go complaining and fighting and squalling about everything in life. You don't look like an adult two-year-old. You simply rest in Jesus, amen? amen? This is what this is all about. This is what this is all about. For most of us, though, and this is just candid conclusion, for most of us, this isn't about salvation, is it? Most of us, as I said by the show of hands before or asked for by a show of hands, this isn't about salvation. When it comes to Jesus saving me, I'm good with sitting in this chair. I'm also not okay with this and neither are you mostly. This is what it means to trust in Jesus. Here's where the problem is, Christian. Please listen to me. Here's where the problem is. God has told you what marriage looks like. Here's what it looks like. It's a, it's a union between a man and a woman. And it's a union for a lifetime. And you go, I'm not real sure about that, Lord. And what does he say? You're not going to have peace and you're not going to have joy in your marriage or in your life. Why? Because you're not in believing. You're not trusting him in this area. What does God say to you? Go to hell. No, he doesn't say that. What does God say to you? You want a good marriage? You want a right marriage? Come on. That's what it's all about. For some of you, it's about a job situation. It's about a calling inside of your life. You trust God for salvation, but when it comes to calling, you're like, do you realize I'm too old for this? This is what I've heard from Barney for seven years. Do you I'm too old for this, God. I can't do this. And you know what God says? God goes, Come on, big boy. Right here. This is what the Christian life is supposed to be. And guess when joy and peace are to their fullest in our lives? When we're sitting in that chair. 
Some of us are all over the place when it comes to faith, when it comes to submission to authority, when it comes to family and trusting others, when it comes to forgiveness, when it comes to obedience, when it comes to repentance. We're just all struggling in faith, and God, meanwhile, is sitting there going, I, I got an option for you. Right here. We can do this. But there are also some, and maybe some here today, some here today, that when it comes to salvation, you're not sitting in this chair. You don't trust Jesus for your salvation. You don't know what that actually means. Please hear me when I say this. Just because God has standards, just because God says what is right and what is wrong, does not imply for one second he does not love you. It implies the exact opposite. He loves you more than you love yourself. He is loving you enough to tell you the truth and to tell you whatever you're going through in your life. Will you sit in my chair? Will you sit right here with me? Hope is the chair. Faith is sitting down. For the Christian to have all joy and all peace is to be in believing, in the chair. And guess what? In every other area of our life, if we will remain in that chair, people are going to ask us of the hope that we have. If we don't remain in that chair, hear me clearly. If we don't remain in that chair, there's no guarantee. You won't have joy. You won't have peace. You'll have anxiety. You'll have fear. You'll have frustration. You'll have all kinds of things. Why? Because the promise has a condition. The promise has a qualifier. Stay inside the city walls. Stay on the chair. Be in believing. If that's the case, nothing's going to harm you. For those of you who have never accepted Jesus, one of the issues that you have is that you look at your life and you say, I've done things in the past that can't be accounted for. Without Jesus, here's what I want to say to you. That's true. And I'm sorry, but there ain't nothing I can do about it. But if you'll believe in Jesus, Scripture says that he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Do you know what that means? Please hear me. You know what that means? That means that even the things that you screwed up 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, God can put them together for your good. Your failed marriage, your horrible treatment of your children, your lack of disciplining your children, your hatred towards your mother or your father, all of those things. God says, come sit here. I'll make it all come back together. Come sit here. I'll use it for your good, your humbling, for your glory. Because God is wanting to bring us up from glory to glory. Momentary light affliction, nothing compared to eternity with Jesus. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.